Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The FT. We are going to stop the leak. We're going to clean up the oil. We're going to remediate any environmental damage. And we are going to return the Gulf Coast to the position it was in prior to this event. That's an absolute commitment. And we will be there long after the media has gone, making good on our promises. That was Tony Hayward speaking on UK television this Monday, when things were still looking a little more rosy for him. Welcome back to Energy Weekly. With me, Carol Ahoyos, I'm sitting in for Ed Crooks, who's on assignment. And with me is Javier Blas, our commodities correspondent. Hello. And also joining us is David Blair, our Middle East and Africa news editor. Hello. So BP is still with us in the news. Uh, You just heard Tony Hayward talking rather positively on Monday, but things got a lot worse for him, didn't they, Javier? Very unusual language for President Obama, who talked about kicking ass from some executives and also mentioned in uh, American television that Mr. Hayward would not be working for him if he was just running the company. So Mr. Hayward was sounding very optimistic on Monday, but obviously things are turning against him, both in the U.S. and also investors beginning to question whether he can continue leading the company, taking in account that 40% of the business of BP is based in the U.S. and his relationships, his political relations in Washington are basically falling apart. It's an ironic time for this to happen because, in fact, there's been some good news on the technical front, hasn't there? Indeed. Mr. Hayward has some reason to be optimistic because for the first time since the the leak started in the Gulf of Mexico, BP could show that it was able to do something to stop oil flowing. The company is beginning to capture quite a substantial amount of the oil that it was flowing. But at the same time, some bad news are coming. U.S. scientists, U.S. government scientists are funding oil undersea, way undersea, something that BP has previously denied. So in in a balance, the situation is not looking so good. And at the end of the day, even if BP is recovering some of the oil leaking, still more than 50 days after the leak started, is not an inside. It's interesting too that photographers and environmentalists who've been waiting desperately to get some good images on the devastation that this may or is beginning to cause, they finally gotten what they wanted, haven't they? They, they got it. And, and it was interesting. I was reading some of the posts that a photographer was posting uh, on, on assignment from the Gulf of Mexico. And one of the complaints was that the, the picture of this catastrophe was not there. I mean, if you, you remember Exxon Valdez, the following morning we have the pictures of the beaches in Alaska and the, and the pelicans, the birds in Alaska covering oil. And in this one, it was all happening offshore. There were, yes, oil floating on the, on the sea, but it was not hitting the beaches on a big time. I mean, Obama went there and it was at poles of, of oil here and there on the beach, but nothing covered. And suddenly we have those pictures and that's having a very powerful image in, in American television where you have pelicans full cover of, of oil. And that obviously, that, that picture is what is going to use remaining history books about this catastrophe. It's going to be these so far 192 pelicans. 
And I know I always I always repeat this every time we talk about BP because I don't want us to forget, but I think most dramatic pictures, in fact, were the explosions of the rig. And some very beautiful pictures are coming out by National Geographic. Almost kind of forgotten is that 11 people died. And interestingly, this is having now a, a more global effect. BP Today came out with its annual statistical review. And to no great surprise to real energy nerds like us, but I think perhaps to a bit of surprise to others, energy consumption shrank last year because of the recession. And the biggest growth in oil production came from the U.S. Gulf of Mexico. Indeed, it's one of the most prolific areas in the world. It's an area that oil companies have been investing a lot of money over the last few years. And it was still, the companies were really thinking that, that the Gulf of Mexico was the most prolific area over the next three to five years. And that's going to change, obviously, with regulation. The International Energy Agency said that uh, by 2015, production could be down between 100 and 300,000 barrels a day from their previous estimate. That's a very significant amount for that particular area of the world. And as you were saying, it's just not only the Gulf of Mexico. We are beginning to have politicians talking about further regulation elsewhere. So far, it's not about moratoriums or anything like that, but the UK, Norway, and the North Sea, it's beginning to talk. Interestingly enough, no mention of new regulation so far in two other critical areas for deep water exploration and production. That's West Africa, Nigeria and Angola and Brazil, where authorities so far has said absolutely nothing about uh, further regulation. I'm going to bring in David Blair here because for a very extreme example of how politics can get in the way of energy production... We have Iran, and that's our second topic today. Uh, a few things happened on the energy front on Sunday. Uh, Iran decided, or at least threatened, we'll see if they flip-flop again on this, that Shell and Repsol would not be allowed to build an LNG processing plant after many, many years of debate. Now, clearly, those two companies had been dragging their feet, not wanting to sign such a big investment because of the political climate. Catch us up a little bit on what's going on on the sanctions front, what's happening at the UN this week. Well, today is the culmination of months of diplomatic effort by the US and its allies, because today, finally, a sanctions resolution is going to be put to a vote in the Security Council. You can't stress enough just how much the Americans have invested in in getting this resolution. Um, It's overshadowed their relationship with China, with Russia. They've been willing to make extraordinary concessions to get this resolution. If you think last year, they were prepared to scrap their entire plan for missile defence in Europe as a concession to Russia to get the Kremlin's support today. It really is remarkable how much effort they put into it. And it will all come to a vote this afternoon. We believe that the resolution will go through simply because they wouldn't put it to a vote unless they were confident of it going through. But it's highly unlikely to be unanimous. So the Americans are going to be denied what they really would have wanted more than anything else, which is a completely unanimous resolution to put maximum pressure on Iran. So unlikely to have any permanent five vetoes, but perhaps some abstentions and some votes against on the non-permanent members? Yes. Among the non-permanent members, you have Brazil and Turkey. Uh, Both of them are expected to vote no. You also have Lebanon, also expected to vote no. So it's highly likely you'll have three no votes. Now, of course, that means the resolution will still be passed, but it would have been symbolically enormously important if the Americans could have confronted the Iranians with a completely unanimous resolution. So despite months of effort, they're not going to get that. 
From a practical point of view, they've actually already had an impact even before the resolution has been passed. Uh, Javier, tell us a little bit about what companies are doing ahead of what is likely to happen today. I think that the most obvious example is gasoline. Iran is a big producer of oil, but because his refining sector is antiquated, he needs to import every month significant amounts of gasoline from the international market. And the U.S. has been lobbying behind the scenes countries and companies to stop those flows of gasoline going into Iran. And so far, they have been successful, at least with some companies. And over the last year, and particularly since January, we have a significant number of oil companies and oil traders who have stopped supplying Iran. Most recently, examples are Glencore, Beetle and Trafigura, the three leading oil trading companies who stopped between December and February supplying gasoline to Iran. Still, France, uh, total of France continue to supply. Some Chinese companies uh, are continue to send in gasoline to Iran. But it is a very different picture of what it was about a year ago when uh, everyone was just uh, selling gasoline to, to Iran in a, in a regular basis. And that's a sense that the U.S. And, uh, and his allies have been able to get also some traction on without needing to go through the Security Council. I mean, just the lobby, the talks behind the scenes are making a, a real difference in the oil sector. And then, of course, if Shell and Repsol bow out after several other companies, instead, in, including Total, over the last few years have bowed out to help develop Iran's massive gas fields, we're going to see Iran, the second largest holder of gas reserves in the world, depending on whether you count the shale gas reserves in the US, but nonetheless, a, a country with massive gas reserves, continue to be a gas importer. And I'm talking about natural gas here, not gasoline. Yeah, that's just absolutely surprising. They have huge amounts of reserves. They are sitting uh, together with Qatar in what is considered the largest natural gas field in the world. And however, they need to import gas. And that's because uh, as companies, international companies just withdraw from the country, Iran is trying to recruit either local companies or some uh, countries that they are sympathetic to him. But so far, those companies are unable to bring the technological experience that Western companies have to develop those very expensive and also very difficult uh, from a technological point of view uh, gas fields in Iran. David, tell us a little bit about the situation within Iran. How much is the sanction situation affecting Iran internally? What are the options of Iran, given what Javier has said? Mm. There's no doubt at all that Iran's economy is in very bad shape. There are a number of causes for that, but sanctions are certainly one of the principal causes. I think the, the vital question really is, what effect will that have? There's two possibilities. Either it can cause the government to become even more unpopular than it is at the moment. It can turn the population against the government. The population would then blame the government for having led Iran into the state of total isolation. Or it could have the opposite effect. It could allow the government to rally the population to its side. It could allow the government to blame outsiders and blame foreigners for all the country's economic problems. Which of those two possibilities turns out to be the right one is really the key question for the months ahead. The US is gambling it will be the first, that it will alienate the people from the government and it will force the government to uh, modify its nuclear program and take account of Western concerns on that. But it's anyone's guess. And in the past, sanctions have not exactly had a good record when it comes to forcing governments to change their priorities. Um, Javier, I, I think I know what you're going to say. You're going to talk about subsidies for a moment. Keep it very short because we're going to go to the next topic. Well, it just it could have paradoxically 
even help Iran yeah. because the country is spending so much money and subsidies to gasoline, for example. It's about $100 billion. It's more than 5% of the GDP of the country that if the government could just remove those subsidies and blame the U.S. for that removal and avoiding the, the pain of the public blaming the government, it could even play on the hands of, of Iran. And that some oil experts have been just warning about yeah. this potential situation for months. Yeah. Now, of course, the sanctions will not only have an effect in Iran, but also around in the region. One of the interesting other stories of this week has been one of the Mazdar project in the United Arab Emirates, building this city of alternative energy. Uh, The news uh, in today's paper uh, is that Total and a Spanish uh, solar company are going to build a $600 million concentrated solar power plant and that that's going to go ahead, which is very positive news. But Mazdar has had trouble because of uh, the recession. But it brings me into this topic of why do you need solar power in the UAE? Why is the UAE talking about nuclear energy? Why is Saudi Arabia discussing nuclear energy when we're in the Middle East where some of the largest gas fields in the world lie? What's going on? David? Well, politically, I would imagine that the countries concerned are trying to broaden their options. They're looking to a future when they may not be as rich in hydrocarbons as they are now. But also, um, they're also looking to a future where Iran may have nuclear weapons and uh, having access to nuclear technology of their own of any kind, even if it's just for civilian purposes at the moment, will broaden their options um, and give them a possible future security policy if they choose to go down that road. Javier, why has the natural gas industry in the Middle East not been developed enough to now support the kind of economic growth that's going on there? And again, let's go back to subsidies and their effect. Well, there are two two main reasons. The, the first one is the countries for years have been focusing on oil and drilling for oil and not for natural gas. I mean, in the past, oil companies or uh, hydrocarbon companies in the Middle East, the national ones, when they were hitting gas supplies rather than an oil field, it was it was seen as a kind of a failure, a, a disaster. So they have the focus had not been there until very recently, and that's just triggering a lack of of success. Uh, the demand is also very high because two reasons. One is that supplies are subsidized, and it's not only uh, the, the cost of natural gas is subsidized, also the cost of electricity for what the the natural gas is being used. Uh, it is subsidized, so the demand is growing at a spectacular rate. And there is a third reason, and you have to remember that we are talking about the Middle East with a booming population, and they are trying to grow also more food internally. That needs a lot of water, and water is extremely scarce in the region. And at the end of the day, what they are doing is using natural gas putting the natural gas in power plants, generating electricity to use that for desalination. It's an extremely costly, probably uh, a madness from an environmental point of view, but that's what they are doing right now. And for that, they need a lot of electricity and a lot of natural gas. And obviously, the subsidies are playing there a a huge role. And when the International Energy Agency uh, earlier this week uh, talked about uh, subsidies, energy subsidies in the world, it's not a surprise that among the top five countries uh, on subsidies were Iran and Saudi Arabia. So it seems to me that this week's linking thematical thread through our three topics is that of politics getting involved in the energy industry. We've got perhaps increased regulation in the US, Gulf of Mexico and beyond. We've got the sanctions vote on Iran today and we've got the decision of governments to heavily subsidize their energy costs. We're now sitting at a time when 
oil and gas is plentiful, energy is plentiful, but it was only two years ago when we were screaming and shouting about a lack of resources. It makes me a little nervous when politicians get involved. So we'll see how we sit in a year and how all these decisions that are being made today at moderate oil prices will impact us in the next two to five years. So that's it for this week. I'm Carol Ahoyos. Energy Weekly was produced by LJ Filatrani. We'll be taking a short break and back in a fortnight. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.